The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Amen. Well, the title of my message is a good one today. It's titled A Word of Encouragement. By a show of hands, how many of you could use a word of encouragement? Maybe you just want to do this, right? We all could. This world abounds with discouraging words and circumstances, right? All you have to do is flip on the local news or perhaps pull out your phone and begin to scroll. And what happens? Your, your heart rate increases, your anxiety goes up, and your hope for the future diminishes. In fact, the definition for the word discouragement, according to Webster's Dictionary, is a feeling of having lost hope or confidence. And I would say hope and confidence in the future in these days is at an all-time low. And perhaps that describes how you're feeling today. You're here and you came and good on you for that. But if truth be told, you're barely hanging on by a thread and you're starting to lose hope. And for anyone in here who might be feeling that way today, you're like, I don't know how much more I can take. You picked the right weekend to come to church. God has a word for you, and he wants to speak life over you, and he wants to fill you with new strength, new hope, and encouragement. Let's go ahead and read together the words of the Lord as he spoke them to Joshua. This is in Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to read all the way down through verse 9. It says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, to all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the West. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Don't turn from the right or to the left that you might be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you might be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Oh, that feels good, even just reading it. And perhaps you picked up on the theme. Four times in this chapter, God tells his servant Joshua to be strong and courageous. And the Lord is wanting to infuse you today with fresh strength and fresh courage. These are two of the greatest assets that any leader can possess. Some qualities that we need to grow in. We need to be strong. We need leaders who are strong to face the challenges of our day. Amen. Now, when I say that, I don't mean strong in a physical sense, mind you, right? Um, We're not talking about you need to increase your bench press here. 
Some of the strongest people I know are small in stature, but they're strong in faith. And so what we're talking about here is a strength of character, a strength of conviction, and a strength of faith. That's the kind of leaders that we need to confront the challenges in our day. But we don't just need leaders who are strong. We need leaders who are courageous. You've no doubt heard this definition for the word courage. I like it. I'm fond of it. But it says that courage isn't the absence of fear, but a willingness to press on in spite of fears. Amen. And it takes courage to lead, to go against the grain, to go against the popular opinion of the day, to step out in faith, trusting the word of the Lord when that's all you have to go on. And so the Lord tells Joshua, not once, not twice, not thrice, but four times, be strong and courageous. That is not just the word of the Lord to Joshua in that day, but that is the word of the Lord to you in this day. Now, if you look at verse nine, he flips it essentially. And he says, and don't be afraid or become discouraged. Now, if you look at those two words, it's really just the opposite or the inverse of, of to be strong and courageous. The opposite of strength is fear. The opposite of courage is discouragement. And so if strength and courage are two of the greatest assets of any aspiring leader, then I would say that two of the greatest threats to your leadership are fear and discouragement. And while God is trying to sow strength into your heart, and while he's trying to build your courage, the enemy wants to sap your strength by planting seeds of fear and by sowing discouragement in your heart. You see, here's how the enemy uses those two things. He often uses fear to, to keep us from starting out and stepping out in faith in some new endeavor, some new ministry, stepping into some opportunity. And he cripples us or paralyzes us with fear. But if that doesn't work, then he circles back around and he seeks to discourage us from finishing what we started. So he uses both fear and discouragement. Let me give you another point on fear. Fear will always attract whatever information is needed in order to support its existence. You'll always find logical reasons to be afraid. And, and certainly that was the case with Joshua. I mean, looking around, there were plenty of reasons to be afraid. For one thing, there was the enemies that were awaiting them on the other side of the Jordan. Now, these enemies were bigger and stronger than the Israelites, and, and nobody knew that better than Joshua. After all, he had seen them firsthand. It was some four decades earlier that Moses conscripted 12 men and he sent them as spies into the land and, and go see the land and see whether or not it truly is a land flowing with milk and honey and it's described the way that God has given to us. And, and so Joshua and Caleb and 10 others go into the land and they come back with a positive report and they describe, oh yes, it really is a land that flows with milk and honey. In other words, it's, it's good for growing crops and raising cattle. But then... 10 of those spies chimed in and said, but, but, but there's giants in the land 
And we seemed like grasshoppers in their sight. And, and they, they, the cities there are well fortified and many of them are walled and we don't stand a chance. Now, Joshua and Caleb, for their part, they tried to come back around and say, no, the Lord will make our enemies like bread in our hands and we can take them. But the 10 other spies proved to, to be more persuasive and they convinced the people that victory wasn't possible. And so because of their unbelief, God said that entire generation, barring Joshua and Caleb, would die out in the wilderness. They wouldn't enter into the land of promise. Now, fast forward 40 years, that whole generation has passed away. Only Joshua and Caleb are left, but they remember well those giants and the walled cities that await them on the other side. Of course, it wasn't just the giants that occupied Joshua's thoughts. There was another obstacle standing in their way. The Lord references it in passing to Joshua in verse 2 when he says, get ready to cross over the Jordan River. You see, standing between the people of God and the promise of God was this obstacle called the Jordan. Now, God just so happened to lead the Israelites to the banks of the Jordan while it was at flood stage. You say, what's the big deal about that? Well, during this particular season of the year, the Jordan River, which at other times isn't that big of a barrier, at this season, it would swell and would overflow its banks, and it could, at places, become more than a mile wide. Now, as the leader, it was Joshua's responsibility to figure out a way across the Jordan. I mean, if it's a mile wide, bridges aren't an option, and so he's thinking, how are we going to get across? But it's not just the enemies that await him or the obstacles before him. Perhaps the biggest thing that Joshua had to overcome were the insecurities and fears that he harbored within his own heart. You say, what did Joshua have to be insecure about? Well, the answer is quite a lot. You see, he had just assumed the reins of leadership from a guy by the name of Moses. Now, Moses was this larger-than-life character that we read about in our scriptures. And so now there's this period of transition. Now, transitions are always tricky. There's so many things that can go wrong and, and relatively few things that can go right. But they are even harder when the guy you're replacing is a living legend like Moses. Consider some of the things on his resume. He was part of the parting of the Red Sea. He received the Ten Commandments. He wrote the first five books of the Bible and helped deliver the children of Israel from 400 years of bondage and slavery in Egypt. I mean, that's just a smattering of things that he accomplished. Certainly not an exhaustive list. And that's the guy that Joshua gets to replace. As you might imagine, I'm sure this caused all kinds of fears and insecurities to, to well up within Joshua. He was no doubt thinking, who am I to lead this great people? Do I have what it takes? And for that matter, why would anybody listen to me, what I have to say? And when I think about Joshua, there are some parallels I can draw from my own experience. You know, um, my dad was not only the pastor of this church for the better part of four decades, but he was also my, my own personal hero. And so when I was tapped on the shoulder and anointed as the next senior pastor of this church, oh, you better believe there was some insecurities that bubbled up within me. 
And I would stand side stage for months getting ready to come out and stand behind this pulpit that I had heard him preach from hundreds of times over the years. And the devil would assault me with all of these, these attacks. And he would say, you're an imposter. You're a fraud. Nobody cares what you have to say. Who do you think you are? You don't have what it takes. And you know, it was during that season that the Lord reminded me of a word of encouragement that I had received years previously from an unlikely source. And I've shared this story once before, but I think it bears repeating. I was at a dinner benefit event, and and while I was there, I ran into this guy by the name of Heath Bell. And if you don't know who Heath Bell is, he was the closer for the San Diego Padres for a number of years. That's the guy that comes in at the end of the game, a lot of pressure, and he saves the game, gets the final three outs. Well, I knew a little bit of his story. He had a great career, but he had the unenviable task of, of following on the heels of a San Diego legend, a guy by the name of Trevor Hoffman. Now, Trevor Hoffman was a Hall of Famer. I mean, he had this classic song that he would walk out to, and he had this unhittable pitch, and there's literally a statue of the guy at the ballpark. And, and so at one point in our conversation, I said, man, those were some pretty big shoes to fill. How did you feel about that? And here was his response. He chuckled and he said, well, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal, actually. I said, really? Why? He said, well, Trevor and I wear different sized shoes, so I just decided to wear my own. (laughs) Which is great advice for anyone transitioning into a position that they feel ill-equipped to to walk in overwhelmed by, unprepared for. It's, you got to learn to walk in your own shoes. You got to learn to speak with your own voice. You got to tread the path that God has paved for you. And so here Joshua is this new leader and he's got all of these things coming against him and all of these obstacles surrounding him and his, his eyes are still on Moses. Now we know that's the case because God begins this little pep talk to his servant by saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now Joshua is clearly well aware of that fact. So why does God point it out to him here? I believe he does so in an effort to get Joshua's eyes off the past or off of Moses, off the man and onto the Lord. You see, Israel, after Moses' passing, had observed a a period of 30 days of mourning. And this event that we're reading about here transpires on the heels of that. And so God says, all right. There's a new season. Joshua, you need to get your eyes off of the past so that you can lay hold of the future that I'm wanting to bring my people into. But that's not always the easiest thing to do, right? We get fixated and we focus on the delivery system that God used in a previous season of our lives. And when we become too fixated on that, it can get hard for us to see what the Lord is doing. And this happens all the time, especially when the the, the individual or the delivery system is someone godly like Moses. We know, for instance, in the days of, of Isaiah, his eyes were fixated on this godly king named Uzziah. But then you get to chapter six of Isaiah and it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, then I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. It wasn't until Uzziah was taken off the scene that Isaiah could see the one whom Uzziah represented, which was the Lord. And Joshua, in a similar, similar way, needed to get his eyes on the Lord so that he could lead the people into this new season. The Lord said this through the prophet Isaiah, and this is Isaiah 43:19. Let's read this together out loud. See, I am doing a new thing. 
Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. And I love this because God's telling his people, I'm doing a new thing. And it's, it's not going to look the same way that it looked in a previous season. It's going to be different. And in the same way, in this new season of your life, how God is going to lead you and the ways that he's going to manifest himself to you and the ways that he's going to deliver you. It's not going to look the same as it looked in those other seasons. So for us, our job is to not get stuck on the old ways, but to lay hold of the new way that God is leading us. How do we do that? By keeping our eyes fixed on the Lord. Someone say amen. amen. Now, getting back to Joshua, he has enemies before him obstacles confronting him and insecurities welling up within him. It's kind of like, you know, the trifecta, lions, tigers, and bears. Oh my, if it was just one, you could handle it. But sometimes it's the enemy coming at you in all of these different ways and all of those things combined and settled in his heart in such a way that it caused him to feel discouraged. I want to unpack this word for a little bit. The word courage, the root of that word, it, it, it means literally out of the heart or to act from the heart. This is how you've been designed to live. God designed you to live from a heart that is fully alive and fully engaged. But when you become discouraged, you lose heart or you become disheartened. Now, when a person stops living from their truest self, you stop living out of your heart. You begin to live in this shadow world and you become a shell of your real self. Your motivation is drained. Your passion is dimmed and you become paralyzed and immobilized and incapable of moving forward in confident faith. Now, keep in mind, this is exactly how the devil wants you to live. If he can discourage you, if he can get you to lose heart, then he can remove you from the battle without even having to throw a punch. But don't worry. God has given us an antidote for the devil's discouragement. And it is this thing called encouragement. Now, if discouragement is all about sapping our strength and robbing our peace and deflating our courage, emptying our heart, then encouragement is about filling it back up. Amen. And it's, it's why it's one of the most beautiful ministries you can have. You should seek to be an encourager. In the New Testament, I believe it's in Hebrews, we're called to encourage one another. And if you have an encourager in your life, man, buy him a coffee, treat him well, because you found uh, a, a blessing, you know, and they're a rare gift from God. I think of a guy like Barnabas in the New Testament. His, his name is Barnabas. That name means son of encouragement. And he lived up to his name. He, he was one of those people that just walked around with a pitcher full of hope. And he would just, every time he saw you, just pour fresh hope, fresh faith, fresh courage, fresh life. He always had a word to speak that would lift your spirit. And we should all seek to be like that and surround ourselves with people like that. But perhaps you would say, I don't have that person in my life. Well, that's okay. When no man is there to encourage you, the Lord himself wants to encourage you. And isn't it fitting that the, that the Lord was the one to come to Joshua in this season of his life? He'd received encouragement from others. In fact, if you go back to Deuteronomy 31, Moses says the same thing to Joshua. 
tells them to be strong and courageous. But sometimes you need that word of encouragement directly from the heart of the Father. Amen? And so the Lord encourages Joshua in three specific ways. And as we unpack these, I believe the Lord's going to use these same three things to fill your heart with fresh strength and fresh courage. Let's walk through them. The first thing that God uses to encourage us is his promises. And that's the first fill in the blank in your outline. He uses his, his promises to encourage us. We see this in verse six, where the Lord tells Joshua, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land, the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Notice how God is tying this land that he's bringing the Israelites into. He's tying that land to an ancient promise that he had spoken hundreds of years earlier to a man named Abraham. And the reason God was bringing the Israelites into the promised land is because he spoke a word of promise to Abraham. I want to read that promise with you. This is Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Let's read it together out loud. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God unilaterally speaks this blessing over this man named Abraham. And, and you'll notice it includes three components. First, it includes a place. He says, go to the land I will show you. That's the land of Israel. But in addition, it also includes a people. He says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Now, the ironic thing about that is when God gives this promise to Abraham, he's old and he doesn't have any children. And so he speaks a promise over him that would be many years before it was fulfilled. But he promises him a place and a people. And thirdly, he, this, this blessing includes a, a promise of blessing and provision. Now, at this point in the story of Israel, God had already made uh, good on two of those components. The people had become a great nation, more than a million strong, and they'd experienced the blessing of God's provision over the past 40 years. God had met all of their needs in supernatural ways as they journeyed from Egypt to the banks of the Jordan. Now all they needed was a permanent place to call home. And so in verse four, the Lord outlines the boundary markers of this land that he was going to bring them into. And he essentially says, this is really interesting, from the river Euphrates to the Mediterranean Sea on your western border, I'm giving this land to you. From the river to the sea, God says, I give the land to thee. Interesting. In light of what we hear coming out of all of these pro Palestinian rallies that are popping up all over the world. And some people even in our own Congress are echoing this chant and it's become somewhat of a rallying cry for that movement. And what are they saying? From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. They're talking about 
the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. That, are, that is the boundary markers of modern day Israel. And they're essentially calling for the extermination of the Jewish people and the eradication of the Jewish state. They're saying that the goal is that there is no more Israel. No. Listen, 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 listen. God loves the Palestinian people. He does. God loves the Palestinian people. But here's what the Lord says, and I'm just going to speak the word of the Lord over you. This is out of Leviticus 25. And the Lord says, the land is mine. The land is mine. So the land is the Lord's, and he has given it to the Jewish people. This is why a two-state solution will never work, because the land isn't Israel's to give away. The land actually belongs to the Lord. Now, does God have a plan and a purpose for the Palestinian people? Does he love them? Did he send his son Jesus to die on the cross for their sins and make a way of salvation for them? Absolutely. But we're talking here about the land and all of God's promises to his people and for this world flow through the people of Israel, flow through the Jewish nation. And so the devil knows that, which is why he is so hostile in his attempts to erase the Jewish people. Because if there's no Jewish people, if there's no state of Israel, then God can't come through on his promises. And so that's what we see happening here. Now, here's what's interesting. The river that God describes here is the river Euphrates. But the river that is modern Israel is, is much closer. It's further in. It's the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. So what gives? Did God, was he off? <laughs> no. The reality of it is that Israel never fully possessed the fullness of what God had given to them. Even at the height of her power, um, and we see this under the reign of King Solomon in the Old Testament, did you know that Israel ever only fully possessed about 10% of what God said, this is what I'm giving to you? And all they had to do was walk in it. And you see that in verse three, every place you put the sole of your foot is a place that I've given to you. This, this is what the Lord says. And yet they stopped short. They settled for less. And it would be easy to point our finger at Israel and say, how could you? But aren't we guilty of the same thing? You see, in Ephesians chapter one, verse three, the Lord speaks through the apostle Paul, and he says that he, that is God, has blessed us, that is the church, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That is an all-encompassing promise. God has given you everything that you need for victory, for abundance, for, for a godly life. It's all there, all for the taking. Yet sadly, how many of us settle for a fraction of a percentage of what's available to us? Think of it like this. What if, you know, you ran into Bill Gates, he decided he liked you and decided to, you know, deposit a billion dollars into your account. He's got enough money or he wouldn't even notice it was gone. Like he's got that in loose change in his car. But for you, it changes your life. And on that day, your net worth goes northward. Amen. 
and we'd all be okay with that. But what happens if you never access those resources? If you never live according to the measure of what you've been given, you continue to operate at the level of a pauper when you've been made a billionaire. And this is how many Christians live. So how do we tap into those blessings? How do we tap into that victory and that power that the scriptures promise? And and the, the answer is you've got to walk in it. You've got to step into the promises and grab hold of them. Peter says it like this in 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4. Let's go ahead and read this together out loud. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So God's given you everything that you need for godly living, a godly life, a victorious life. How do you tap into that? By by grabbing hold of these great and precious promises. There are over 7,000 of them. They're sprinkled like Easter eggs throughout your Bible. And every time you find one, you can grab hold of it. You can stand upon it. And it's like a blank check that is just waiting to be cashed. But you've got to walk in those promises. And God has given them to you to encourage you. The second way that God encourages us is through his abiding presence. We see this in verse 5 where the Lord tells Joshua, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. Wow, that is an amazing promise. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. These are the words that Jesus echoed in the Great Commission. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The God of the Bible is the God who never leaves us nor forsakes us. And when Joshua heard the Lord say that, it must have been like music to his ears. You see, he had learned from his predecessor, his mentor, Moses, to value the presence over and above everything else in this life. Moses cherished the presence. We, we talked about that a few weeks ago in our study, talking about lingering in the presence. And Moses was so enamored by God's presence. He craved it so deeply that at one point in Exodus 33, he said, Lord, if you don't go with us from this place, then we're not leaving. In essence, what Moses was saying, God, I don't want the promised land if it doesn't come with your presence. If I could have the land flowing with milk and honey, I could live in a permanent home. I could live at relative ease and peace. But you're not there, Lord. I don't want it. And I wonder if we could say the same thing. Like, what if you could have everything your heart desired? What if you could have heaven? I mean, with streets of gold and no death, no war, no disease, no nothing, nothing bad, all that stuff gone. You could have heaven, but Jesus isn't there. Could you be satisfied? For Joshua and Moses, they would say, no, the presence is everything. And without the Lord, I have nothing, even if I possess everything. And if I have the Lord and nothing else, I have all I need and more. (laughs) Now, in telling Joshua, I'm going to go with you and no one will be able to stand against you. That doesn't mean he won't have to face enemies. It just means they won't prevail. You see, When you face enemies, if you know the Lord's with you, what that does is it removes fear. And at the end of the day, the greatest enemy in our lives isn't the opposition, 
But it's, it's the fear that we face that usually is the worst. And so what we really need is a deep conviction that God is with us in those trials as we pass through them. And that is what we find in Scripture. Indeed, He is, as Isaiah 43, 2 puts it. And let's read this verse together out loud as well. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Now, I love that scripture for a lot of reasons, but you'll notice with me, it doesn't say if you pass through these trials. It says when, but God will be with us. And if you know he's with you, then the tentacles of fear that wrap themselves around your heart, they are released and you can move into those trials with confidence, even to the point where you can face death without fear. The the really scary thing for the believer isn't death. I mean, it's just a translation uh, from, from here to heaven, right? The Bible says you fall asleep here and you wake up in the presence. That's not bad. But what grips us is the fear. Is it going to hurt? I'm scared. But David had learned to walk so closely with the Lord that in Psalm 23, he could say, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because you are with me. And when you walk so closely with the Lord, I've been there in the room with so many people over the years who were transitioning from here into the next life. And they had a peace in their heart because they had the abiding presence of the Lord with them. And I hope that encourages you today. The Lord is with you. But it's not just his promises that he speaks over us and his presence that he gives to us. There's a third blessing that the Lord wants to give you today. God wants to encourage you through his word. That's the third point in our outline. And we read about this in verses seven through nine, where the Lord tells Joshua, make sure that you you take this word that I've delivered through Moses to you. And I want you to keep it on your lips. That is to speak it over your life. And I want you to hold it in your heart. That is, I want you to meditate on it day and night. And I want you to live it out with your feet. I want you to wrap your Bible in shoe leather, as D.L. Moody used to say. And I want you to put feet to your faith. But how does that encourage us? How does the word of God inspire us and give us courage to face our fears? Well, there's several ways. Let me walk through a few of them with you. Number one, when you read the Bible, you come across all of these stories of men and women who faced circumstances that in many ways are similar to the ones you'll face. Now, granted, they didn't have things like nuclear proliferation. They didn't have a 24-hour news cycle. And they didn't have some of the you know, social media things and, and stuff like that. But, but the underlying issues, the root causes of the anxieties, the fears, and the trials that we face, it's all the same. And so as I read about their stories and I see how God was faithful to carry them through, I'm encouraged that the same God who met them in their story will meet me in mine and he will carry me through just like he did them. Something else happens to me when I read the Bible and it's that I get to know the character, the nature and the heart of the God of this world, of all the universe, I should say. And I, I come face to face with his loving nature, his goodness, 
his compassion. I get to see the way he responds in situations. I get to see the way he is moved and, and the way he acts and, and how he leads and, and the way he comforts. And I get to taste firsthand his mercy and his grace. I get to encounter his trustworthiness. And it, 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 it just brings me peace. You see, this book is not here just to provide you with some tips and tricks on how to maximize your joy. This book exists to introduce you to the heart of your heavenly father. And the more you get to see how good he is, the more encouraged you will be. Your faith will grow too when you read this book. As you open the word, faith comes from hearing, and it's like a muscle that gets strengthened through use. And so as you just sit under the teaching of God's word, your, your faith is being built. So too, you're able to draw encouragement from all the promises. We talked about that. So when you read about how God is using all things together for good in the life of those who love him and are called to his purposes, you get to understand that no matter what I'm going through right now, God is using this for my good and his glory. When you read the promise that he'll provide for all of your needs according to his riches, and you see the stack of bills, and, and then you see the, the bank account that isn't enough, and you think, God, you're going to have to come through, and you get to watch God come through, because he always comes through on his word. And when you read the promise that he's with you, and he'll never leave you nor forsake you, but you feel alone, you can grab hold of that promise, and you're encouraged in all of these ways. Another way that reading this book encourages me is by letting me know what God's ultimate plan is. You see, we see the end from the beginning, and it's all mapped out in advance. And so while we look at a world that seems to be coming unglued and untethered, and it, it looks for all practical intents and purposes like it's falling apart as believers because we know how the story plays out, we can say, no, it's not falling apart. It's falling into place. And this is all happening according to God's predetermined plan. And that brings peace. So when everybody else has a, a heart rate that is accelerated and anxiety that is ballooning and they have blood pressure that is spiking, you can walk in perfect peace because you know that your heavenly father has a plan. Amen. Now, while all of those are great reasons to open the word and to read your Bible, let me share one more with you. And this really is the main reason that you should put your nose in this book each and every day. When you open the word of God, you get to encounter Jesus. And that's really the thing that will remove or extract the weed of discouragement from your heart more than anything else. As an example of this, I think of the story in Luke 24, where you find the two disciples. These guys were disheartened. They were discouraged. They were distraught. And they found themselves walking forlornly down this road called Emmaus. Why were they so sad? Because this man named Jesus, a man in whom they'd pinned all their hopes, he'd been crucified some three days before. And so they were dejectedly walking down the Emmaus road. And then who comes and joins them incognito? None other than Jesus himself. But they have scales over their eyes and they can't recognize him. And so as Jesus then opens the scriptures to them and he begins with Moses and he walks them all the way through the New Testament or Old Testament, rather through the prophets and through the, the poetry books and, and through the Pentateuch. And he tells them this was 
speaking of Jesus. And this was about Jesus. And this was about Jesus. And it's all part of God's plan. And in that moment, their discouragement gives way to a note of joy. And their eyes are opened. And they see the scriptures through a new light. It's the lens of Jesus that they're now interpreting. Not only their own experiences, but all of the Old Testament. And he comes alive to them. And when Jesus is gone from their sight, they turn to one another and they say, didn't our hearts burn? within us as he spoke the word to us. And it is the word of God that leads us to the heart of the father. And we get to encounter Jesus and he fills us with fresh courage to face the battles. Because here's something I can promise you. When you walk out of those doors today, those enemies are still going to be there. The obstacles aren't going to go away. And the insecurities, they don't just evaporate. The fear remains. And so the way that we combat fear and discouragement is by tapping into those sources of encouragement. We surround one another. We encourage one another. We hold on to his promises. We search for his presence. We open his word. And while the devil keeps trying and he keeps, he keeps doing the best he can to, to sow fear in the hearts of God's people, we can overcome him. Why? Because we know he is with us. Because we know he is for us. And because of that, no one can stand against us. Will you say that with me? Say, my God is with me. Say, my God is for me. Say, no one can stand against me. That was good, but now we need to really believe it when we say it. Say, my God is with me. My God is for me. No one can stand against me. The Apostle Paul would say it like this in Romans chapter 8. He would say, if God is for you, then who can be against you? In other words, yeah, the enemy is still going to come against you, but he won't be able to stand against you. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. You are more than a conqueror in Christ. So you walk out of here with fresh faith. Your cup is filled to overflowing. Why? Because your God is with you. Your God is for you, and so no one can stand against you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.